Hello, welcome to CropCast, a series of monthly podcasts covering topical issues throughout the season. We will also bring you some of the latest research from experts. My name is Tiffany McTaggart and we have jammed packed episode for you today. Firstly, we're speaking to Peter Lindsay, a Principal Consultant and Arable Specialist with SAC Consulting about spring barley T1 and T2 sprays and oilseed rape, flowering sprays and desiccation. We will then be talking to Kieran Maloney, a Potato Specialist Consultant with SAC Consulting. Finally, we'll be speaking to Kirsten Williams, a Specialist Beef and Sheep Consultant, where we will talk about forage crops and looking at establishing in the season ahead. Welcome along, Peter. Good to have you today. Shall we start with talking about the spring barley and then we can move on to oilseed rape? What pests and diseases can be found in the crops or are they fairly clean at the moment? So the, the spring barley crops are, are fairly clean and they do tend to be. They've got fairly good resistance ratings, most of the varieties nowadays. And we tend to be on a T1 uh, fungicide would be a kind of a proactive um, approach as opposed to waiting for disease to come in. So in, in general, we're not really waiting for disease to come into the crop. Um, but net blot, shrinkosporium, mildew would be the, the, the diseases that, that we are looking out for. The value in crops uh, this year, we're not really inclined to be cutting corners um, in, in, in um, fungicides and pesticides this year. Um, just because saving a couple of pounds, it doesn't take much of a disease, or sorry, much of a yield decrease to um, to lose that saving. So we're more likely to be protecting the crops to try and get their full potential um, back from them. So, what T1 sprays are you considering this year? Uh, T1s. We are largely looking at um, Siltra and Ascara as the, the choices for, for this year. Um, the T1 timing isn't such a high pressure. It is, as I said, more of a protectant um, spray. Um, I've generally been on a, a Siltra or Fandangos or whatever for the last few years, but um, Ascara has certainly come out as um, quite competitively priced this year. So it's quite strongly uh, or a strong um, candidate. Um, the other issue we've probably had this year is, is more that of, of supply chain issues. Um, so not everybody's maybe getting their first choice um, chemical that they want um, or getting it in time. So I know a lot more people have been planning ahead and getting chemicals on farm, um, whereas in the past they might have waited to see what, what they could see in the field. But um, this year uh, that's maybe been a bit more of a risky approach. So. Um, plans are there, chemicals are in the shed, and that's what will go on the fields. Yep, so anybody who's not got their T2 sprays in the in the um, chemical store should be thinking about getting them ordered then. Yep, no, I think that's a good good advice is, is to plan ahead. And yeah, the T2 timing is, is the, the crucial timing and the one that will um, protect the yield and, and see the best return on investment. Uh, so yeah, it's just speaking to your um, suppliers to make sure that um, the, the chemicals are there uh, and that you can get them in good time. Um, and generally, I think our advice every year would be often that timing is more important than, than the actual product and just getting the chemistry on at, at the right time um, 
basically on Speepin or, or just beyond for the T2. Um, so yeah, I, I think the last thing you want to get caught with is um, turning up or phoning up your, your chemical supplier and expecting chemicals to arrive tomorrow and suddenly you can't get them for another week. Uh, and in catchy weather, that can turn into a few weeks and then suddenly that's when disease gets in is when you start extending the gaps between the T1 and the T2 beyond kind of three to four weeks. Okay, so for the T2s, what kind of products or chemistry are you looking at then? Uh, we're generally looking at um, still the Siltras um, would probably be mainstay, but then looking more for Ramularia, we'd be looking to add in Fulpit um, to try and keep the, the Ramularia at bay. And I know certainly from the trials last year, they've um, been looking at uh, Revistar, which is a relatively new uh, chemical, and it seemed to perform well against uh, Ramularia in the trial sites last year. So that could be another option to, to look at. Um, but there's a caveat with the latest growth stage that you can apply. Um, these chemicals needs to be kept into consideration. Um, so yeah, the Revistar needs to be on a wee bit sharper than some of the other chemicals. But uh, it's hard not to farm uh, this year for last year, but last year was Ramularia was quite quite an issue in some places anyway. So yeah, um, full pits would be a, a pretty crucial addition to the, the mix, no matter what the other fungicide partner you're putting in with it. Would would you make would you make adjustments to your plan depending on the level of disease you're seeing in the field? Yeah, kind of as I said, it's um, I'm not inclined to cut corners um, just with the value of the crop. Um, in previous years, I maybe have been, um, but certainly I would. I would revise um, rates up if if there was disease, um, if we were seeing Rhynchosporium or net blotch um, in the plants after after the T1. But uh, I would certainly be hopeful that a good T1 will have avoided that coming in. But yes, if there was if there was um, disease there, then I would be probably increasing rates. Um, the T2 is the is the most important timing so it's not the one where i would be looking to make cutbacks in previous years when the value of the crop hasn't been so much uh, if we were going to be making a, a saving it was often the t1 timing that was either a very cheap and cheerful or in certain occasions there just was no t1 applied um that it does come with a risk and you can end up having a compromised timing where where you rush in with an early T2 because you've not put on a T1 and the weather's quite catchy. So uh, then suddenly you've only just put a, a, a T1 and a half on and then you think, well, I don't really want to put a T2 on. It's only been 10 days since I was in the fields last. Uh, so I, I don't really like doing that as such. So again, this year with, with high value prices, a, a well-timed T1 and a well-timed T2 is where I would be certainly aiming to go for and hopefully that the disease will be kept under control by the good t1 so that we're not chasing anything at t2 but yes if there was disease present at t2 that's when we'd be looking to to increase um, rates of the 
T2 fungicides. That's great. And um, by the sounds of it, walking the crops regularly to make sure you know what the disease levels as well will help. And you can have a look at the crop protection report produced by SAC Consulting, and they'll help keep you up to date on the latest information. Yep, exactly. No, it's all about um, being out there, seeing what you can see in the in the area. Um, we've got a good network of um, consultants and agronomists throughout the the country as well, so we can find disease coming in, um, whether it's from the coasts or whether it's from the south to the north. Um, but uh, yeah, we have a good network of um, across the organisation and also trials in the trials um, fields where they've got untreated plots as well, which is a good indicator of, of what pressure is out there, um, which we often don't see that pressure in the, well, we see the pressure, but we don't see the, re the results in the field because we tend to have got fungicides on the crops. Um, but it could be very interesting looking at the untreated plots through the trial sites to see what diseases are around. Moving on to oilseed rapes, Peter, would you be able to give us an idea how the oilseed rape programs are progressing? Yeah, the <coughs> oilseed rape programs progressed probably mostly as, as per plan. Um, so yeah, the, the likely spot sprays went on in good time, weather conditions were good at that timing. And then the, the sclerotinia sprays or the flowering sprays as we call them um, are going on or gone on um, there's a debate some people do one spray some people do two there's talk of the occasional person even putting a third spray on um, generally has to be assessed down to, to risk uh, on your farm how many sclerotinia um, susceptible crops you're growing in your rotation um, what history you've got of actually seeing sclerotinia um, in, in your crops of oilseed rape etc um yeah there'll be i don't know there might be a a 50 50 split between one spray approach and, and two spray approaches um so yeah the two spray guys they're going on at, at relatively early flowering and relatively late flowering um whereas the one spray um people generally go on just after full flower um, once the petals are falling um the idea being to get get the fungicide on, coat the petals and, and protect them um, for when the petals stick to the leaves on their way down, which whilst we've not been getting huge amounts of rain, we're still getting drizzly mornings and, and sticky plants where the, the petals can, can still easily stick to the, um, the leaves of the plant as they descend to the ground. For the sclerotinia risk, is that more likely on farms that are growing vegetables or what's the situation there? Yeah, so those that are growing um, the sclerotinia susceptible crops, so your potatoes and peas and, and, and vegetables in general, um, carrots. Um, so if they're growing a lot of those then, and they're high value crops as well, so um, it's it might not even be financially justifiable in in the oilseed rate to spray it twice, but for the wider benefit of the rotation, um, it's still beneficial to spray the oilseed rate twice to prevent uh, or reduce the pressure uh, for when those high value crops come into the um, the, the the field in the rotation. Uh, so yeah, it, it, it's. It's working on the farm, the farm situation, and knowing that farm and, and the previous history as to what you've seen. Um, 
yeah, obviously it, it's probably quite easy to look um, after the event um, when it's too late. Um, just but when it comes to harvesting or, or desiccating the crop, then that's a good chance to look underneath and see if you can see any white stems um, appearing up uh, through the crop, and that will give you an indication as to whether you should have done more what the the pressure is um but yeah always good to look back at that time of year as well and see see um if there is sclerotinia present in your all grape crop so what rates of glyphosate are you applying and when are you putting them on um so we're putting on uh three to four liters a hectare of a 360 um grams active product uh putting it on when basically the seeds in the middle of the canopy are green brown mottled as a red green sorry red brown mottled um just as they're turning really uh and, and get that on so should farmers be considering using pod stick to minimize minimize shattering when they're going on with the glyphosate yes uh, i think so particularly this year again the, the value of the the um, crop that's being harvested it, it it would only take a few kilos a hectare to actually pay for it um the pod stick isn't particularly expensive um yes yeah, some farmers maybe question whether it does any good or not but it doesn't have to do much good to pay for itself um so yeah i think um it is it is um, a worthwhile uh, addition to the tank especially if you're going through anyway to put to put glyphosate on you were mentioning with the spring barley about the supply issues is this another opportunity for farmers to plan ahead and get the products into their chemical stores now yeah, definitely. I think uh, it, it's it's a product that they they know that they're going to need. Um, so yes, getting that in the shed and ready to um, ready to use. Um, I have heard stories that um, the pod stick is also in short supply or could be in short supply um, as much as glyphosate has been a, a bit of a struggle for the last um, few months. These are products that you do you know you're going to need them, so get them ordered and get them uh, on the farm ready to to go when when you're when well when the crop's ready to go. Well, hopefully the weather's favourable at harvest time and it can all go to plan for farmers. Let's hope so. Thank you very much for your time today, Peter. Thank you. Potato growers have been seen busy out in the fields planting their potatoes. I am delighted today to be joined by Kieran to have a chat about potatoes and looking at the season ahead. Welcome Kieran. Hi Tiffany. To begin with, can you give us an idea of how planting has gone this year? Uh, yeah, so it, it's, the conditions have been uh, really good for potato planting uh, this spring. It's been, been a big contrast to, um, to last season. So. Um, had some periods which were very cold and wet uh, uh, last year, particularly in May, um, uh, uh, and that really disrupted planting and meant that um, tubers that had been planted uh, took a long time to emerge. Uh, touch wood, things have been a lot better this season. Um, the weather was quite wet and cold at the start of early May, and that that, that delayed planting a little bit, but every, um, most of the growers have made up um, a lot of ground since then. Uh, conditions have been really good. Um, yeah, good good progress ac across Scotland with, with planting and if, if conditions stay the way they are, it's, it's boding well for, for emergence, so we'll see. So looking forward, the next problem for potato growers to be considering is blight. What is the current trend in blight management? 
Okay, well, that's <laughs> yeah, could, could go on all day with a question like that. So, so uh, late blight for tough and festans uh, is probably the biggest consideration uh, for growing potatoes. Luckily, in terms of crop protection, luckily there 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 is quite a wide uh, array of management options in terms of fungicides. Um, so, provided growers are paying attention to the weather conditions and uh, the strains of blight that are around, should be possible to 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 manage blight in 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 crops fairly well. So, I guess the biggest considerations uh, Scotland would be the changing late blight population. So. The pathogen evolves quite fast. Uh, the, the, there's always new strains. Well, reg, regularly new strains arise, um, and the general trend in recent years is, is for these to be more aggressive. So what I mean by that is that they complete their life cycle faster and they cause more disease, uh, which is a problem for growers because if they get established in their crops, the the, the epidemic can can take off quite quickly. You can get quite quite severe outbreaks. And late blight is obviously an issue, not only because it damages the, the canopies, it, it, it leads to yield loss. Um, if, if not managed properly, uh, it's a threat to the, to the tubers as well. So you can get tuber blight and breakdown in, in store. So it's, so, it's, so it's a really big issue. So, I mean, yeah, cur current trends, the, the, the population um, in, is, 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 is a big one. So the more aggressive strains. Um, we also know of a strain which is resistant to one of the active ingredients, which which was a mainstay of blight control, was really important, fluazinam. So that's strain 37A2. Um, that's been present for the last couple of years in Scotland. So we're, we're generally adv advising growers against using fluazinam, particularly on its own and particularly um, early in the season um, for late blight control. It does have some other roles in crop protection um, against other pathogens in other places, but 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 that's the, that's the main re resistance issue yeah that's good to know so are there any warning indicators of blight yeah so we've got uh we're quite lucky and we've got quite a sophisticated uh warning system which was developed um, by scientists at the james hutton institute which is called the hutton criteria so that's based on um big data studies and also studies in the lab that look at the perfect conditions for blight to get established and then start kick, kicking off, kicking off an, um, an outbreak. So there are systems that you can use that you can sign up to, uh, which will alert you um, when there have been um, Hutton periods uh, in postcodes near, 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 near your fields. Um, there are also some systems you can use uh, which, which, which are fed directly in from weather, weather stations on farms. So that tells you um, when conditions have been um, ideal um, for infection. Because late blight is so aggressive and, and, and is such a serious crop protection problem, um, we do, you do need to be preventative with your blight programs. So generally speaking, although it's very important to keep an eye on the high risk conditions and to adjust what products you're using, and also to have a look if any outbreaks have been recorded uh, in, 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 in fields, uh, Near, near, near your own potato fields, um, it's much better to 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 have a regular program. So, so the standard, the industry standard for for late bright control, is uh, regular spray intervals every seven days, and then to choose your products based on the growth stage of the crop, um, but also on 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 the blight pressure. And because we have um, such aggressive strains uh, present in Scotland, uh, it's generally better to start your programs earlier. 
um, rather than hanging around and waiting for the first um, uh, the first high high risk uh, Hutton period to occur. So so the general advice for for late blight control is to start programs from rosette stage. So that's when the plants are about dinner plate plate size. And um, as long as the pressure is low, you can start with with maybe some of the cheaper products that 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 um, that will that that do offer good control, but they're but they're you know maybe a little bit older, maybe maybe not quite as um, not quite as powerful as some of the more expensive products, but they're good to use early on. And then as you get, um, as the epidemic ramp, ramps up over the season, that's when you might need to, to, to look at different different products. Okay. Can you give us a bit of an idea of what kind of products you might use earlier in the season and what kind of products you might use later in the season? Uh, yeah, so this is a good, uh, agronomists love arguing about this. <laughs> so there's loads and loads and loads of um different active ingredients different products for blight and everybody has their own their own favorite program um i think that the 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 key timings are um rapid rapid canopy growth so so um when when the um uh just before canopy closure the 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 potato plants will grow very very rapidly and they, they, they can put on a they can put on a huge amount of um, of foliage very very quickly, so it's important that you have a a, a product that will protect that new growth. Um, so something like Revis, Ranman Top, Infinito, that would be a good product to 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 use in that slot. Um, I don't want to get too much into the weeds here, but uh, uh, another thing to consider when you're putting together uh, late bite programs is is uh, having products at the end of the season which will protect you um, against tuber blight. So have some activity against zoospores, which are the swimming spores, which can be washed down from lesions in the canopy and then make their way to the tubers. Um, so uh, you, you need to make sure that uh, you have products in your store and you've not used all your allowed sprays early in the season um, that will allow you to give you some 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 tuber bite control. Again, it's things like Ramman Top Infinito that have that have have activity um, against zoo spores and, and are useful um, later on in the season. But the, you know, the, the, there's there's so many bite products. Uh, we 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 as part of the SACAP bulletin, we sort of publish a list every year, and it runs to maybe six or seven pages. Um, there's also other independent sources of information. So uh, there's something called Euroblight. And there's a website uh, which hosts the Euroblight table, um, which amalgamates uh, independent field trials um, across Europe uh, and gives rankings uh, for late blight fungicides on some of their different characteristics. So uh, protection of new growth, um, whether they're anti-sporulants or whether they, they sort of reduce the number of spores that blight produces, whether they have zoospore activity, so whether they'd be good at protecting against tuber blight. So that's an independent source of information that growers can look at or they can speak to their agronomists and consultants and they can kind of uh, help them select products based on that, that information. We will put into the show notes link to Euroblight and to SACAP and the potato bulletins so you can go and have a look in your own time. So to finish off, Kieran, what are your three top tips for the season ahead? Okay, well, uh, that's a, yeah, difficult question. Um, I, I, I think, as always, with with with, with potato production, um, attention to detail um, is 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 really key. So um, some growers will have will have 
quite high hex ridge. They'll have a lot of fields to, to pay attention to. So it, 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 it's, it's just making sure you don't you don't um, you don't miss anything. So attention to detail when it comes to, to crop protection, keeping an eye on your crops, keeping an eye on on on, on what, what what growth stage they're at. Um, making sure you you make decisions about product choice. So we've we've touched on blight today for seed growers. Um, they'll also have an aphicide program um, for 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 uh, aphid vectored viruses. So it's really important to, to, to pay attention to that. Um, towards the end of the season, um, growers will need to make decisions about about home destruction, getting the timing of that of that right. Um, so yeah, I, I, I guess attention to detail would be the would be the I'd, I, yeah would be my one tip, and I think that that would cover everything. So I'd roll that into one. Perfect. That's been brilliant. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks, Tiffany. Moving on to forage crops, with the rising costs, the question in many livestock farmers' minds is whether they should be growing forage crops this year. I'm delighted to be talking to Kirsten about forage crops and what should be considered for the season ahead. Welcome along, Kirsten. Hi, Tiffany. Thank you for having me. Just to begin with, Kirsten, what are the main forage crops which farmers in Scotland might be planting? Okay, so there's two kind of main types of forage crops. We've got leafy ones or root crops. So your leafy crops will include the likes of kale, rape and hybrids of the two. Your root crops will cover your double turnip, your swedes, your turnip and fodder wheat. Okay, so if you were looking at which crop to put some cattle onto, is there some crops that are more suitable? Yeah, yeah. So when you're choosing which crop to have, there's quite a lot to think about. So like you've just said there, the class of stock is, is a major thing. So is it for cattle, but then is it for suckler cows? Is it for finishers? And then same with sheep. Is it for pregnant yows? Is it for finishing lambs? Is it for store lambs? You've also got to think about when you want to eat it. So when you want to utilise it, when you want to plough your ground up or when you want to take it out of grass, how quickly you want it to grow. You want to think about if it's winter hardy or not. It, that kind of goes along with when you want to eat it. And then I guess the last thing to think about is your situation. How high is your farm? How low is your farm? How exposed is it? What's the location? What's local contractors like for putting the various crops in? So there's, there's quite a lot to think about, to be honest. Yeah, there is definitely a lot to think about. Um, a good job that we have our technical note, um, number 733, which is available on the Farm Advisory Service website, which has some fantastic tables breaking down the qualities of the crops, including nutritional values and nitrogen recommendations, and is a really good source of finding out a bit more so you can select the right one for your farm. So if you were looking to plant kale, what are the merits of that crop? Yeah, so they've they've all got a different yield, they've all got different nutritional components, they've all got different winter hardiness, they've all got different costs to produce them as well. So if you're looking at your, your leafy crops, you've got kale, so it's generally really high yielding. You're looking at about 8 to 10 tonnes of dry matter a hectare that you get from kale. You can utilise it right into the winter. It can grow quite tall. So for kale, thinking of the stock that would eat it, it's great for cattle. If it grows tall and has a thick stem, then it's not as good for sheep. 
but it's a fantastic crop for cattle. And it actually has quite a good tolerance to the cold as well. So that usually can, can um, get you through the winter. However, if you've got, like this year, we had Storm Arwen, then being so tall and stemmy, a, a, a big wind like that can, can make it fall. Similarly, if you've got a big dump of snow or something, then, then that can be quite hard on it as well. Your other leafy crops, so like your, your rape as a kind of comparison, that is a shorter crop, so it doesn't grow as, as tall as kale. Given because of that, it doesn't have a, such a high yield. You're looking more like half, if not less than half the yield of, of kale. It is super fast growing, so you can usually get into it and utilise it about 10 to 12 weeks after you've grown it. Um, and it, because it's so leafy, it doesn't have that stem, it's generally a really good high protein feed. So you're looking at about 19 to 20% protein in the leaf there, and it's a good energy crop as well. They're not as cold tolerant as kale is. That is um, one thing to, to watch out for. But there's loads of options with your, your rate because it is so quick growing. You could take a cut of silage and then get the, the rape and, or hybrids into the ground after that. So you can effectively get two crops off, off the ground between your silage and then putting in your, your rape. Similarly, you could do the same with kale. It's quite quick growing compared to your root crops. Your root crops, they are slower going. Their yield and fresh is generally big and they have a, a mass amount of energy with, within their within their bulbs. They're all very different. So if we look at a stubble, a stubble turnip, it is a quick growing crop again. So you could get a crop of silage, you could get a crop of winter crop and then get it into the ground. So being quick growing, um it is it can actually be a main crop as well so that's like a catch crop i'm speaking about there where you're getting a second crop within the year you can grow it as a main crop as well you've got quite a low establishment cost with your stubble turnip which can be quite attractive and it tends to again be high energy but you've got a good protein source there with that your swedes and your fodder beet they are higher yielding so if we look at Swedes first, you would look to get about 70 to 90 tonne per hectare fresh yield of your, your Swede. So that's about, say, 7 to, ton, seven to 10 tonnes of dry matter a hectare. You've got a really good energy source. So it's like 13 megajoules per kilo of dry matter. So it's quite comparable to barley, to be honest. And the growing cost of that is more high than your stubble turnip but then what you get back in yield more than pays for it the final crop would be fodder beet so fodder beet is slightly different again from swedes in that it is really high yielding you get a really good yield of dry matter with your fodder beet you get various different varieties you can have a high dry matter or a low dry matter variety and um, depending again on your class of stock if it's sheep, you might choose to have a lower dry matter crop that sits further out of the ground. So it, it's not as deep rooting and it's a bit easier for them to eat. Whereas your high dry matter, they're generally more for, for lifting because they're further into the ground. About 80% of the plant is in the ground with those and they're, they're quite hard to eat. You've got 
again, similar to barley, it's about 13 um, megajoules of energy per kilo of dry matter. Your protein is held in your leaf. So as winter progresses, you start to lose your leaf and they are just an energy bomb. So they're full of sugar. They're related to the same family as sugar beet, the fodder beet. So you've got to be really, really careful about how you transition livestock onto fodder beet. So that's quite a, a quick rundown of, of the crops. And you can see just how different they are between the leaves and the bulbs. But even within the bulbs, there's, there's quite a lot of differences there. That's great. Thank you, Kirsten. Um, that's very interesting. It was interesting to hear that stubble turnips could be planted um, after a winter cereal as well, which is quite handy for a farmer that's got arable land as well. And last year, Kirsten also produced a series of forage vlogs, which can be found on the Forage Crops page on the Farm Advisory Service website. Um, it's a great way to learn a bit more about forage crops. So when it comes to sowing the crops, is there any rules of thumb of when the different forage crops need to be planted? Yeah, so your, your highest yielding crops, so your root crops like your fodder beet and your swedes, they need to go in the ground earliest. So really you're looking at your spring months. Typically people will be sowing fodder beet about April time uh, and, and into early May. Swedes tend to go in about May time. That gives them a nice long growing season to then get livestock into them, usually about October, November time. Your leafy ones, so your your kale, say you could sow it from April and you could go right through probably until about July time with, with kale. And then your rape and your hybrids and your, your stubble neeps, stubble sweets, you would be again looking from the spring right through until about August. And it, it's really having that, when we say August, it's really just evaluating what the soil conditions are, are like in August. And if it's if it's super, super dry, then obviously they're, they're gonna struggle to germinate. So it's just really, every year would be different. If we think about the spring of 2021, it was such a cold, wet, slow start to the spring so when I was saying April for fodder beet there was many actually went in May June so it's really just making sure that the soil's warm enough to, to get in and that you can get all your your typical groundwork done as well that it's not so wet that you're doing more damage by trying to get in early it's and the better the soil conditions are the more fine the seed bed is and better prepared then obviously the better establishment you'll get so I, I wouldn't rush to stick with a rule of thumb I would really just evaluate it on a year-by-year -year basis. Okay that's great thank you Kirsten. So with the high fertilizer and input prices this year I think farmers will be not wanting to spend uh, too much money on their forage um, what is the kind of cost of growing forage crops and are the crops which require lower fertiliser usage? Well, it's, it's a really interesting one and a question that we're getting asked quite a lot this spring, which I guess is no surprise. But if, if we look at, say, the farm management handbook from last year, and if we double up the fertiliser costs, because they have generally, they have generally gone up, haven't they, um, about double, so we would be looking the kind of growing costs of them. And then if, if we think about the machinery costs as well, then it, it does it does really add up. So 
I would tend to go with about £90 an acre for machinery costs, including ploughing, power harrows, um, rolling, sowing, fertiliser spraying and your spraying. I get to about £90 an acre and then you've got your, your growing costs of your seed, your fertiliser, buying your sprays and such like. And the 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 prices really really vary to be honest. So of of the crops, fodder beet would be the most expensive crop to grow. So you'd be looking at about three hundred and seventy pounds an acre for your fodder beet, and then say plus your your cost of your ploughing, your power harrowing. You've then got various kind of costs. So your rapes and your hybrids would be your cheapest. So again, we're thinking. Yes, they're, they're cheaper to establish, but you're not actually getting the same level of yield. So they would be about, say, £160 uh, per acre to, to produce. But if you think of it on a yield basis, a dry matter basis, an energy basis, a protein basis, it, it actually equals itself out quite nicely. So it, it, it sounds, it's a big headline, fodder beet is really expensive to produce, but actually you, you look after the crop, you get a good yield for it. The rapes and hybrids, they are not as expensive to produce, they're quicker growing, they're they're a nice quick fix crop. So I think it's really difficult actually to compare them by price. If if we go into it a bit more and kind of look at what it costs per kilo of dry matter, I've done a bit of a comparison of what a Swede would be against what fodder beet would be. And say if, if Swedes were hundred and 20 pounds an acre to establish plus plus your 90 pounds an acre for your field work fodder beat at say 370 then i'm actually getting it that your swede is five pence per kilo of dry matter and your fodder beat is six pence per kilo of dry matter so that just kind of puts it into perspective that yeah there's a big a big cost difference at the start but when you bring it down to to the extra yield you get the extra dry matter you get there's really not a lot in it. That's very interesting. I hadn't thought about looking at how much dry matter you're producing in the field and allocating the costs accordingly. Yeah, it's, if you take the cost that bit further as well, so say, say we're talking about a pregnant yow. A pregnant yow has a really high energy requirement as you get further into pregnancy. So fodder beet and swedes are actually a really nice way to outwinter your yows or keep keep them out. You don't have a lot of grass at that time of year, so it's a really nice way to feed them kind of in situ in, in the field, allocated on a daily basis behind a electric wire. And your your yow feed is is typically about 12 and a half ME. So then if, if you take it on a, a dry matter basis and an energy basis, you would be looking at your fodder beet would cost you about five pence per kilo of metabolized energy your me whereas your yow feed would be about five times that at current prices so it just again it sounds really expensive to grow but actually what what you get for that is really really cost effective so would you recommend people still grow forage crops this year when fertilizer prices are so high yes i would i would it's every situation is is different. I think it's it's really worth highlighting that. And we speak to a lot of people and what they're doing. Some people are cutting back fertilizer. Some people are doing the same. 
some are focusing more on forage crops and less on grasses. Everybody's built their own resilience around, around the problem. But with high fertiliser prices comes a high cereal price and your, your forage crop is there to kind of fill your forage gap. So when, when you don't have that grass growth, your forage crop is there. And if it's not there, you've got to feed them with something else. So it may be that it's cereal, which the price is going to be high because of the global situation, plus the fertiliser price is high. So again, looking at your different animals, if it's sheep, you you've you can't you've got to feed them through the winter. If it's cattle, it can cheapen the winter having forage crops because they're not inside, they're they're not having to eat alternative forages and they're they've not got the straw cost. So your forage crop is still a, a really nice strategy. It's not as cheap as normal because your fertilizer cost has gone high. But on a year like this it's really worth looking after them and investing in them because they 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 can add so much value actually to your livestock enterprise. And cutting cutting back is, is what a lot of folk have spoken about. But really you want to try and maximise your yield as much as, as you can. So I think the more important message and you spoke about the technical note and the technical note brings in like your fertiliser recommendations and it's really understanding how much fertiliser you need, what the the soil, uh, what its current status is and then what what that crop requires. So if, if the say the potash requirement is um, at a, a set amount, it's making sure that, that that's what you're giving it and you're not giving it extra fertiliser that, that's just going to get luxury uptake. It's worth also thinking about the use of organic manures. Like they're, they're a massive, massive asset to livestock farms having that organic manure. And is there somewhere that that can fit in to make your forage crop production a bit cheaper this year? Excellent. That's been very interesting, Kirsten. Lots of food for thought there. Just to finish off, what is your top tips for the season ahead? <laughs> I think it would have to be, if you're going to invest in growing crops, it's that you look after the crops. And it's not, you, you sow them and leave them alone. Think about what those crops need. So say it's, it's Swedes. Has it been that you've, you've taken the boron out of the fertiliser to make it a bit cheaper? But then think of the effect that's going to have on the crop. So it's well worth really looking after it. Think about alternatives. Say it's boron that you've taken out. Think about alternatives like spraying on boron compared to getting boronated fertiliser. Um, if, if the crop gets weedy, a, a crop of, say, fodder wheat or swedes that gets taken, taken in with weeds, the germination isn't going to be as good. The yield's not going to be as good. But you've already invested in ploughing, sowing, the fertiliser. Um, so I, I would really try and look after the crops and keep the agronomy of the crops right. A massive thank you to all of today's speakers and thank you for joining us for this episode of Cropcast. If you've enjoyed listening, please like, subscribe and follow our podcast available on the FAS channel. Leave us a review to let us know how we're doing and if you'd like to get in touch, you can find all of our contact details in the show notes below. You may also enjoy some of our other shows, such as Stock Talk, our monthly panel show providing timely advice on livestock management, or Thrill of the Hill, a monthly show featuring guest speakers who live and work in the upland environment. 
Join us again on the 22nd of June for our next episode of Popcast. The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government.